There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Ken Loach as part of my In Conversation series, first screened on W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with a controversial film director who is the only British director to win the coveted Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival twice. He won it for The Wind That Shakes the Barley and the recent I, Daniel Blake, that also earned him a BAFTA. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with Ken Loach. Thank you for doing this. Well, it's a treat. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, you might change your mind in an hour. I might. <laughs> no, although I've known you for a while, since really 2010, it's a rare opportunity to get you to sit still and just talk. You must be one of the busiest men in film because you never seem to stop. You, I'm looking at the films that you've made and really since the 90s, it's almost been every two years. Yeah, well, I, I've, I've been very lucky. I mean, I've worked with the writer, you know well, Paul, Paul Laverty, yeah. and the producer, Rebecca O'Brien. Yeah. And um, Paul's very dynamic and full of ideas and we talk a lot and sort of one idea spills out after another. And we're, we're a cheap date, as you know. So Rebecca raises the money well. So we've been lucky just to keep going. But there was a suggestion that I, Daniel Blake, your most recent film, you weren't going to make that. Well, we did a film in Ireland called Jimmy's Hall. Yeah. It involved being away from home for about a year. And it was was a terrific thing to do, but it was in an Irish bog. Yeah. Which was quite hard work. The, The people were fantastic, as always. And I thought, I can't get through this again. So Jimmy's Hall was... Three years ago, was it? Four yeah. years ago. So yeah, at that yeah. time, you would have been 76? No, I was 77, I think, then. 77? Or 78 or something So like you're away from home for a year. Now, if you're 77 and you're away from home, it means you're normally in a nursing home. <laughs> <laughs> Not in an Irish bog trying to corral a village full of actors. Yeah, yeah. Where do you get your energy from? Um... I don't... Well, I, I don't know. I, I think you you would find the same... When you're engaged with people who care about stuff, they invigorate you, yeah. you know. And I think it's, I think it's engagement in, in struggles, in, in, in what's going on, in seeing things that you want to support and seeing things you want to do something about. Um, and it, it's being engaged with people is what gives you energy. And when you're detached, when you're just sat at home with the television, your energy goes. When you're engaged in something, your energy rises. The last film that you made, um, I, Daniel Blake, for which you won the Palm d'Or for the second time and, and you won the BAFTA, you said it drew you out of a retirement that you weren't sure you were going to stay in anyway. What was it? Did Paul Laverty come down and go, I've got this story? Did you see what was happening in the world and think we need to make the story? What was the thing that gave you the energy? 
to go I, back I, and do I it think again. Paul and I both saw saw what was going on. And the moment you started to look what was happening, the thing is right in your face. Mm. You know, the, the, the moment you re- realised that, in, like in 2015, 1,100,000 bags of food were given out by charities because people couldn't feed themselves. What? That amount? Yeah, you know. And it's gone up. It's, it, it went up for... When in 2010, when the tourists came in, it was 23,000, 24,000, something like that. It went up. Why? What are they doing? And like then, I think in 2015, 400,000 people sanctioned. 400,000. Now, some of those are families. So that means they've got no money, means they can't eat, they've got no resources. Well, for the people who don't know what sanctioned is, yeah, yeah. just explain that. Well, if you're, if you're getting financial support because you're sick or disabled or you're out of work, um, you, get a, you get a job seeker's allowance for unemployed. If you're disabled or sick, you get employment and support allowance. Or now it's the universal credit. But it's a small amount, 70 quid a week or something like that. Now, if that's cut off because you haven't filled in the form correctly or you've been, say, five minutes late because the bus was late or whatever happens, you're, you're sanctioned, your money is stopped. It stops immediately. The, the chaos that people's lives are in, you know? I mean, you, you may be a, a mother with kids and you've got no food. And what do you do? Well, you can apply for hardship allowance. How long is that going to come through? Well, maybe a week, two weeks, three weeks. The kids are hungry now, you know? And, and when you, you read the scale of that distress and poverty and is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, we've found uh, people who were sanctioned for being late two minutes, three minutes... We found people who were sanctioned with small children. Um, we found people who were sanctioned for the smallest infringement of the demands on them. Um, and we also found that the job coaches in the job centres have expectations set by the management of how many people they will refer for sanctions. And that's, of course, what is denied. But job coaches told us across the country, that if they don't refer a certain number of people for sanctions, they get uh, put on personal improvement plans. I, I found the film really strong. I mean, admittedly, it, it, it ticked a lot of boxes for me in terms of being um, socially aware and accurate and probably coming from a position that politically I would support, but I still found it um, difficult to watch and ignore. You know, there's one scene in a food bank which is so powerful in its simplicity. Uh, and I actually asked Paul, you know, where did he get the idea from? And he said, I didn't get the idea. That happened. Someone told him that that, that had happened. Mm-hmm. And that level of desperation is, is something that you can almost avoid. It seems to me that we're, we're, we're drifting so that this world's existing. And unless somebody like you, you point, points a camera at it, I don't know whether we're going to see it because the, the only other way it's ever discussed is like some Benefit Street Channel 5 documentary where we're mocking people in that situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, their programmes are wicked. I, I call them fascist television. Yeah. Well, a lot of people do. I mean, it's to set up people to be denigrated, humiliated, something else. And if there's something else, they're less than human, so it doesn't matter what happens to them. I mean, there's another shocking element to the whole process, and this is now called the, the work capability assessment, where people are disabled and sick, and this is the, the situation of the guy in the film. He's sick. His, his doctor and consultant says he cannot work. He will, his life will be at risk if he works. And, and you, that's what their doctor and consultant says. The government isn't happy with that. They, they employ an American company, Maximus, multinational company, to come in and do another assessment and contradict the doctor 
and consultant and say, no, you are fit for work. You've got to work. You've got to jump through all these hoops that we tell you. And if you don't, you get no money. And, and the bizarre thing is they, they know this is, uh, this, is, this is wrong. The government knows it's wrong. If your people can be strong enough to challenge this decision and appeal... 60% of the appeals are successful. And there was one case in Bristol where law students took on as a project some of the people who had been told that they were fit for work when they weren't. And guess how many, what their success rate was? 95%. 95% the appeals were successful. So the government knows that it's putting sick and disabled people through terrible chaos in order to humiliate, in order to be a warning, in order to reinstate the the workhouse, you know, mm. you don't do as you say you're for the workhouse. And that was the 19th century. This is the 21st century. Ian Duncan Smith and his pal that's followed him has done the same thing. As you said, you mentioned Paul Laverty, who you've worked with since the 90s, really, yeah, haven't you? Yeah. Does Paul say, I've got an idea, here's a script? Or do you say, look, this is a, a theme we can look at? Or do we try and follow these characters? How does, how, what's the collaboration to the creation of a script? Um, well, he, Paul lives in Scotland, as you yeah. know, and, and I live down here, and um, we send each other messages all the time and um, exchange stories. And we usually find there's a, we're sending each other stories and bits from the press or friends or whatever, and they start to become interesting. Um, and then we'll maybe say, well, maybe there's something in this, and then we'll start to do a bit of research. I mean, Paul does the majority of the research by far. Um, and so he'll start making contacts, and then one thing leads to another, and um, there's an idea, and there's a character, and there's a, a story beginning to emerge. But that story that emerges is kept between you two yeah. and, and Rebecca as the yeah. producer, because um, for, for the sake of clarity, I was in a film that, that yes. you made, Ruth Irish. Yes. I'm not telling you that, I'm telling them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it gave me an insight, possibly a unique insight, into the way you, you work and your process as a director. Mm. Mm. Um, number one, which surprises everyone when I tell people, for the actors, there's no script. That is something every time I say to people, they go, what? I go, yeah, you know, I got cast in a film without actually knowing the story of the film. Yeah, yes. I, I remember there was a bit of bad news in the phone call, wasn't there? Oh. When... <laughs> I, in fact, I'll tell everyone the story. Yes, what yeah. happened? It was a film called Roots Irish, and, he, and, and it was about three main protagonists, really. Uh, Mark Womack played my best friend called Fergus, Andrea Lowe played my girlfriend, and then I was playing a character called Frankie. And he said, it's, it's about your relationship, you three. And everyone said to me, what happens if you ever get cast in a Ken Loach film? Ken's going to phone you up and he's going to tell you something about your character you can't tell anyone else. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was in Liverpool, I was doing a play at the time, the phone rang and I answered the phone and he went, John, it's Ken. I went, this is me moment. I'm going to find out I've got a limp or something. <laughs> There's going to be something in the character's backstory. And he said, John, I've got to tell you something about your character. I said, OK, Ken, what is it? He said, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> I said, he's, de he's dead? You go, yeah, you only appeared in it in flashback. <laughs> I went, oh, Ken, that's shit. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a long flashback, though, wasn't it? It was oh, a long, it was a long flashback. flashback. A yeah. long flashback. And we, and, and we went to, uh, to Iraq, didn't we? Yeah, the story was about the... Uh, 
privatisation of war, really, and about yeah. the private security services in Iraq. And so I was playing an ex-paratrooper, mm. and, and so was Mark. And so we, we, we did that bit in Iraq before they went back to Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. And again, that was something that was evident then and is, in many respects, probably, I think, quite unique. But you, you, you direct films chronologically. Yeah. So for people who are not familiar with film, what would normally happen is they would get the, the, the scenes that are all going to take place in the house and film them, no matter where they are within the story. Yeah, yeah. What makes you do it that way? Because it must be more hassle and more... More expensive? Um, no, it's much easier for directors. What, what you want to show people in the film is people interacting. That, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at people like yourself in the film as characters and you interact with people and you do things. Now, what's important is they really believe you're in that moment absolutely experiencing that thing. When there's two people talking, that's the first time you've heard those words. Yeah. First time. Now... How do, you, how do you get that, that in your mind, that this is where you are at this moment? Well, clearly, the scene that has happened in real life just before that, you should have, you should have done just before that so, that, so that you build up the story. So we, in our case, we began with the war in Iraq and your friendship with Mark, with Fergus, and the, that friendship is the basis for the film. Well, if we hadn't done that, they wouldn't, you wouldn't have had a memory of that. Fergus wouldn't have had a memory of that. So it's important that, they, that the characters, they don't have to work it out in their head, they just have it in their stomach. Yeah. You know, they have it in their memory. So in a way, what you do one day is the rehearsal for what you're going to do the next day. Yeah. And it, you don't have to say, I wonder what I would feel like if I had done such and such. You've done it. So you, you, just, you just have it. And it's an emotional memory and not a kind of cerebral construct. The thing about your films is there is this, this element of, of truth in them. There's an element that this has come from somewhere real, even though it might mm. not be palatable. Mm. And as a vehicle for that, you do often cast what people would regard as non-actors. Is that a mm. conscious decision or is that because they bring something to the screen that you don't want the viewer to have with them? I, I think it's both. I, I think if you've got a, an identity beyond, beyond the part, it doesn't help. But I think if, if the main thing is to find someone that the audience will believe and, and will, someone who will touch the audience, obviously. Somebody, somebody who is, if they say they're from a place, they really are from that place. Mm. If, if, they're, if they're from that class, they're really from that class. I think social class is very hard to dissemble. But that, that in its own right, some actors would say undermines their art as an actor. Well, they might. But I think, I mean, I, I think you want the, act, the people in the film to be the experts. I mean, it's not me telling you what you should feel, what your experience is. You're telling me, you're showing me. And if you've got a history of, like in this last one we've done, Dave Johns, who you, you know well, is yeah. a lovely great man scene, yeah. and a terrific comic and was great to work with. Um, he's from Newcastle. And he's from, the, he's from Biker, which is where we shot a lot of the film. And I went, when we were filming, I'd say, tell us about your childhood there, Dave. And where did you live and which shops did you go to? And, and it brought his childhood alive in his head again. And that's what I wanted in the character. Yeah. So it was instant to talk, but in a way he was, it made him that man, you know? And he had, he had that reservoir of knowledge and, and commitment. And, and he, he was like, yes, yeah, I can tell you. I know about this guy. I know yeah. everything about this guy. Good. That's what I want. Yeah. yeah. And it was a brilliant performance. Mm.
This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. The home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For you as a, as a filmmaker, you were at the BBC at that time when it, when it was challenging and political. Mm-hmm. But you, you, your background doesn't suggest that you would naturally be a filmmaker to want social change because in some respects you're... Your life suggested you should have been more more Tory than the left wing, <laughs> let's say. You know, you because you went to to the BBC after graduating with a degree yeah. in law from Oxford University. I know, but I didn't do much law. In fairness, be fair, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't All right, it was law. a third. It was a third. Yeah. <laughs> but it was still an Oxford University <laughs> degree, was. and you you yeah. were a, you were a grammar school boy. Although your dad was an electrician, yeah, and yeah. worked in a tool making factory. You, you were in some respects the kind of success story that, yeah. that often gets portrayed when people are saying, well, you can't have social mobility because yeah. grammar school gives you an opportunity to then go on yeah. to Oxford University, which then opened your eyes to the wider world. Yeah, well, but I mean, just in parentheses, the grammar schools were a wicked system because, I mean, I'm from a town in, called Nuneaton in the, in the Midlands mm. and... Um, just an ordinary town of some 70,000 or so people, just 60 boys a year, aged 11, were on the path to go to university. Out of that 60, maybe eight or nine did. All the other kids aged 11, aged 11 were told, that's you, pal, Mm. you won't go any further than 16. So the idea of bringing that that desperately unfair system back is horrendous. But no, I mean, I, I was... Um, well, see, when you nothing. say that, because I know the governments are looking at doing it yeah. uh, and, and seem committed to doing it, people will point at you and go, well, that, that, that's all right, you've benefited from it. Why? I know there's only 60, but 60 is better than nothing. Well, the, the, everyone should have that chance because kids develop at different ages and they have different talents and... I wouldn't want my kids to have been told age 11, you're never going to go to university. Mm. And I'm sure you wouldn't. No, no, mm. but I, I, when, you, when you left then and you went to, to, to Oxford University, mm. did you suddenly see the world through new eyes or was it what you expected? Yeah. But w- when I went to university, and because I went to one of the old posh ones, you suddenly saw a class of people who were different. 
Mm. This is late 1957, so it's a long time ago. They had the sports cars, they had the money, they just treated people differently. I mean, this is the Cameron Osborne, Boris Johnson class. Yeah. Um, and they had real wealth. And, and that was the first time they became aware, like, class in your face. And, and it was clear they were born to rule. They were born to run the country, and of course they do. But when you go to Oxford University and you're surrounded by people, entitled people, as it were, mm, um, mm. you're studying law, but you fell in love with theatre and you mm. fell in love with acting. Mm. That must have been a hard message to take home to your <laughs> mum and dad. No, it wasn't, it wasn't popular. <laughs> no, it, it's... Um, I mean, I'd, I'd done it when I was a teenager as well and, and um, done school plays and cycled to Stratford-on-Avon to watch the great actors of the day and was, was obsessed by theatre. And, um, and he said... Uh, I mean, he was horrified because... I mean, he, he read legal case histories, you know, like the, the barristers of the day, he would devour their books. So to have his son go to a good university, read law, you know, that was double top for, for Dad. And then to, to then say, I'm sorry, Dad, I, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Um, he was devastated and I, I, I felt, I've always felt very bad about that. If there was a theme about your films, is the underdog. Was that something because... In your life, earlier on, you felt to an extent like an underdog. You know, you went to grammar school, you weren't born to it. You went to Oxford, yeah, yeah. you weren't born to it. No, I, when, when I went to Oxford, I think those of us who came from grammar schools just had a, a feeling of that, a, a bit of being, for, you know, an outsider. But no, not really. I, 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 I mean, but quite close to people who were just lived an ordinary, ordinary life. I mean, my dad was one of ten kids, really, and, and um, all his family were minors, and he went, you know, he learned his... He did his apprenticeship in the pit, so... I mean, I'm only one generation away from that. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that's me, you know. Yeah. I, I was just lucky, really. Well, sometimes for you, who's been presented as a spokesperson for, for the underdog or the working class, one of the criticisms that you've had is you no longer live there anymore. You're almost told you can't have a voice unless you're still living on the estate. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. I mean, that, that's. I think that's silly. I mean, you're, you've 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 got to justify um, having a voice and speaking out really just by by the truth of what you try and present. You know, if you if you can if it's exposed, if it's false, if it's phony, if it's saying something that isn't true, well, come on, let's have the argument. You know, yeah. I'll I'll defend it and I'll 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 challenge you on every point you make, you know. I'll stand by the research. So I, th I think you it's fair enough to be challenged, but then you'll get it you'll get it back in spades. <laughs> After Kaz, you then went into a period uh, through the 70s and 80s, where, where things just didn't work out for you? The 70s were OK. The 80s were the problem, and uh, I just got banned during the 80s. I mean, basically, yeah, you did get banned, didn't you? You, mm. you made a, seri a series of documentaries for Channel 4, mm. which mm. Uh, never saw the light of day, mm. uh, yeah. which was questions of leadership. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I haven't seen them because you never saw a light today. But the, those, yeah. those films were about the trade union movement, weren't they? And yeah. what, what was what was actually happening yes. behind the scenes? Yes, because the um, Thatcher came in in '79 um, um, and started closing down factories. Um, 
legislation against trade unions, set-piece strikes, where she provoked a strike knowing that she could win or in intending to win. Um, and unemployment went through the roof. It went from, what, half a million, I don't know, up to three million. And factories were closing all over the place. It was real social upheaval. And what, the, 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 what was being said at the time was that the trade unions were all powerful, they had to be cut back, and that the leaders were these rabid militants who were driving their members out on strike. Actually, the reverse was true, and this is what we made the, the films about, the reverse was true. The, the leaders, most of them, not all, almost all of them, were desperate to do a deal and, and just negotiate redundancy terms, not keep the places open. A lot of the people at work were, were prepared to struggle and say, no, this is our factory, we will keep it open, we'll occupy it. The leaders actually sold them out, and that's what the films were about. And, and it, was, it was straight political censorship because they didn't want those ideas to be broadcast at that time. Now, to some people, they'd say, well, you're just saying that because it's sour grapes. When you say it's straight political censorship, mm, mm. and when you say that the leadership was selling the workers out, mm. is that coming through the filter of your perception? Or, or, or is that something, a conclusion that you cannot fail to reach when given all the facts? Well, I mean, we, we interviewed hundreds of people, and many of them are in the programmes. And, um, I mean, there was example after example after example of um, deals that were done that the members refused to accept. But then, nevertheless, the deal went through. For you, mm. as a person, you, when you were going through that bad time in the 80s, you had to make compromises by making adverts, mm. you know, for Nestle, for McDonald's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And that would surprise a lot of people because people would say, yeah, but, you know, Kent Lodge would surely starved and do that well you can't starve and no well um i nearly left the business actually um i nearly left the business i, I looked into um going back to the law but my qualifications were so weak <laughs> and so out of date and i've forgotten it all that it would have you know um yeah i thought about teaching um we took out an extra mortgage on the house um and um no i just uh, i thought about giving it up but then i got off uh, david putnam um who i owe debt to said do you want to do a film about john stalker who was the policeman at the center of the yeah. shoot to kill inquiry which was hidden agenda and um he said do you want to do a film and so I went along and saw him, and he, he got us started with a script, and um, I was back in business, really. But the, the prospect of, of, I, of staying in the business and doing commercials or leaving, I'd sooner have left. But the thing is, at, at the time I was asked to do them, um, it, was, it was that or, well, the bills were coming in. Yeah, you've got kids, you've got mouths yeah, yeah. to feed them, yeah, but yeah, that's, yeah. That's, one of the, that's one of the immediate things that I was talking about. People have to have to act with what's in front of them rather than the wider yeah. picture because you can't see it. I mean, that's why people are working in the job as job coaches for the DWP. I mean, most of them know that what they're doing is, is abhorrent at the moment because we met an awful lot of them. Yeah. But, but they have to do the job and many have left, but many, many feel they don't have that alternative. So it's, yeah, I, I would never criticise anybody in, in that situation because you, 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 you can't change the system by one individual act of self-denial. I mean, you, you have to, we have to work together as a, as a collective.
to change. And you, you mentioned Hidden Agenda being the start of you getting back into mm. cinemas. Mm. It was originally difficult to get it shown in the UK, but mm. can nominated it and give it a lift and put it in cinemas. And, and that seems to have been the story with all of your films. Your relationship with the European audience is often more favourable than your relationship with the, the UK audience. Yeah, yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Um, well, I think we've got a, they have a different view of cinema, particularly France. France and Italy have been the big, uh, are big supporters. And, uh, you know, it, it's seen as, it's not seen as just a, something to accompany the popcorn. It, it's, it's seen as a, something that is as wide and as varied as theatre or novels or any other art form. That lift that the, uh, the Cannes Film Festival gave Hidden Agenda and also the support that was in place from Channel 4 Films mm, mm. changed changed the landscape really for you because then that's when this cycle of almost film every yeah, yeah, yeah. two years started. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what changed it for us from, from 1990 onwards. That and working with Rebecca O'Brien, the producer yeah. who worked with ever since. Um, Paul and I linked up um, early 90s. So in a way, I've, I've been huge lucky John really in that we always ask people when they come on the show to bring a, uh, a photograph that's right. special to them. Right. Uh, you've brought three. Yes. <laughs> this is what you've brought. Uh, yes. That's, that's me in the middle and my dad on the left and mother on the right. And uh, that's the back of our house in uh, Manor Court Road, Nuneaton. Um, and I think I must have been about four then, three or four. The war would have been on. Dad was in a reserved occupation making machine, well, they're making munitions actually. Um, that was him and he was a terrific man. Um, underrated um, by me at the time, as sons do. Um, but he, a brilliant, very bright man. He would pass the exam for the grammar school when he was 11 and his mother couldn't afford the uniform, so like many kids, he didn't go. Um, but he, he was um, very sharp, had little patience with me as a teenager, quite right too, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother was a hairdresser who gave up her job when she was um, when she got married because for for men then, it was a sign of their competence that, they, that their wives didn't have to go yeah. out to work. It wasn't like a career. She didn't have to go out to yeah. work. So he was very proud of that. Um, but of course, sad for her because she enjoyed being a hairdresser and she enjoyed the crack with the customers, you know. But it was I was very lucky. It was a very happy family. A lot's gone on in those 70-odd years. <laughs> <laughs> and the next one? Yes. The, the point of that is that directors don't make films. Um, it's always a gang. That's Paul Lavish on the right. Um, Chris Menges, brilliant, wonderful cameraman, and I've worked with two or three, all ex. Uh, and Susanna Lenton, who's worked with us for 20-odd years, uh, as the continuity we used to call it, but watching the script. Um, and it's um, it's a very... I've been hugely lucky because film crews can support you or destroy you, and they've uh, they've carried me for, um, for a lot of films, and so I owed them a lot. And your final picture? Well, I mean, th th this is the family, Stephen and Jimmy and Leslie, my wife, and uh, Emma and Hannah. And I, I was, I've always felt, and I think... One or two of us feel this way. I mean, I know you, your your family is is brilliantly revealed in your in the stories you tell. But for for most of us, I I just hate the mawkishness of showbiz families, and and so I think we've always felt well. You know, you, you, you your family is just your family is your family, and works work. And so I we've never been involved in any of that showbiz stuff. Uh, and, but, but showbiz not, stuff. Well, stories about them in the press. You know, who's married to whom, and kids who. Follow 
follow. You know, it, it just is. They were right to their own lives as far as possible. Um, yeah. And and uh, I hate it in th- you know in speeches when people get things and they thank everybody and it, it just seems mawkish really. Yeah. So uh, maybe an old Puritan. No, but but without actually going over that point, you faced that yourself because you lost a son, Nicholas, in a car crash. I did. And again, that, that kind of thing changes a person, changes mm. how, how, you, how you view the world. Mm. But it's also something that, as a family, you've kept. And that's one of the things about you. You you have this public world and you have this other world inside, which particularly if you've gone through something like that, that pain probably informs some of the work that you do as well. Well, yes, of course. I mean, it, it changes you and it, it it's, um, it's something we, we've never spoken about really until recently and, and really because it's, it, it's a wound that needs to be fresh. You know? mm. it's not, and if you talk about it, you talk about it more, you talk about it more, it becomes calloused, I think, and, and less, less raw. And you want it to stay raw. You don't want to, that to heal. So mm. I think that's why we've never talked about it. Um, and uh, I'll talk to you because you're a pal. <laughs> but it's, it's not something you would talk about in public much. Um, but for, Families, families are where you learn. You learn about human relations, isn't it? Is through your families, and um, you learn. You just learn the politics of life, really, and uh, uh, the comedy, the drama, the tragedy, maybe, and uh, and what makes you laugh and what supports you. It's all. They're all stories of your families. That and work. I was going to say, mm. for you, though, the difficulty is because the nature of your job, you have to be single-minded when you're making a film, don't you? So you have spent time away from home. I know James, your older mm. son's now a director as well, but you, you're, you've had to, I suppose, make sacrifices in order to be there, and Leslie's had to carry mm. carry the weight of it. Yes, well, it, I think it's the other. It's the family who makes the sacrifice. Mm. Um, I mean, Leslie's carried the, carried the family when, when I've been away, and obviously I... I I owe her a lot for that. Um, but um, again, it goes back to my dad. I mean, he worked because he was on maintenance. He worked seven days a week. The alarm went off six o'clock in our house Monday to the following Monday. Because he was on maintenance, he had to go in when the factory was shut. So he went in Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings. And and when that's happened for the first, um, you know, all the time you've lived at home, it kind of gets into the DNA, I suppose. The work ethic. Well, I hate to think of it like that. I hate well, to think is. of it like that. Because if you didn't have the work mm. ethic, you didn't have the energy, you didn't have the drive, you wouldn't be producing the material that you're producing. Well, yes, I owe the old bugger a bit, don't I, really? Mm. <laughs> and I think we all owe you a thank you for a wonderful conversation, ladies and gentlemen. Please put your hands together for that. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks, man. This podcast was brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.